0: All right, so ready for another look at uh, love. Remember, our outline is love, no, speak, do. I don't know that you really need to memorize that, but uh, that kind of keeps you track of where we're at in the curriculum. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this morning, uh, a morning where we can come together to receive the truth of your word, to fellowship with one another, to grow in Christ, to, to worship you. Uh, Lord, what a a gift this is uh, to us, that our souls can be enriched, our minds can be instructed, and uh, we can go out uh, from uh, our time this morning and in the worship service uh, with strength for what you have ahead for us. Uh, Lord, let this time be helpful to us. Uh, I know that there's a lot to think through, and then as we apply it, it's sometimes hard to remember in the moment uh, what... What's a wise way of handling a situation? And so we need your help. We need your help to understand these principles uh, and then to live them out in our daily lives as we have opportunity to uh, be an agent of change in the lives of others. So minister to us, teach us, and cause us to be more like Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we've, we've been working through uh, what does it look like? Uh, to uh, understand our role in our relationships. Uh, again, our very first session, we highlighted that the need for change that we have, is, or rather the need for help outside of ourselves that we have, is not a result of the fall, it's a result of how we were made. God made us to be dependent, first and foremost, on Him, as well as uh, on one another. And so we looked at uh, how the heart is the central issue in any person's need for help and change. It's not just about outward conformity to some lifestyle or set of righteousness or whatever it is. It's about the heart and conforming the heart to the heart of God and helping someone grow uh, in that. And then that will flow out to the rest of life. And the hope that we have as believers in particular is that we have been united to Christ. And so we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and we have the, the power of God in His Word, and so we can have confidence that change is possible. That God desires us to change, and He gives us the ability to change. Our, our benediction for the service this morning is Second Peter 1, uh, 2 and 3, which says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father... No, that's not it. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. I had to think about that for a second. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, who in His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us according to His glory and excellence. So we have, in the power of God, because of the power of God, everything that we need for life and godliness. So as we think about what does it look like, how, how can the Lord use us as an agent of change in the life of another person, uh, we start with the reality that God designed our relationships to be characterized by uh, redemption, uh, and or rather by love and redemption. In other words, our relationship, relationships are to be loving and redemptive. All right, we, we often engage in relationships for our own joy and delight. Hey, let's go out, and go bowling. <laughs> uh, let's let's go do this fun thing. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But at the at a core level, the reason that God made us to be in relationship with one another is so that we would encourage one another and help each other grow in Christlikeness. That we would be agents of change in each other's lives. And so. At a fundamental level, our relationships are to be loving, that is, reflecting the love of Christ that He has for us in His uh, uh, work uh, in our lives to bring about change, uh, and in that sense also redeeming. Obviously, we don't pay for each other's sins, but we participate in the redeeming work of Christ that He is doing in each other's lives by uh, encouraging each other, pointing each other to the truth, comforting each other, and, and so forth. So that tells us, that reality tells us that God has higher goals for our relationships than we do. And so as we think about the relationships in our lives, and, and I'm not talking about just the, uh, or, or I'm not talking about every conversation that you have has to be the spiritually deep, redemptive conversation, life-changing moment, right? But just think about the, those regular relationships in your life where you're interacting with someone, maybe on a daily basis, you know, someone in the home, maybe on a very regular basis uh, in the workplace uh, or uh, in the church, uh, or the people that that you have a relationship with, there's a connection between you that you would say, yes, I have some kind of relationship with that person. The overarching purpose that God has for that connection between you and another person is for you to be an agent of change in them and for them to be an agent of change in you. Sometimes that uh, is unintentional, that just by relating, just by being who we are, especially if if we're like Christ to some degree, that that just the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we live has a a natural influence on the other person because they're challenged by our example. And then sometimes it's intentional where we have purposeful, even planned conversations to talk about specific things. So God uses us in each other's lives all the time. right? You can even observe someone from a distance, you know, like someone who is going through a, a trial, and you can read their prayer request on Hope Book, and that can be a way that God works in you because of how you're encouraged by their example. That, that would be a, unintentional, if you will, in the sense that they're not trying to change you, but God is using them in your life to change you. And so that's how you can also be Uh, an agent of change in the lives of others, where just by your own testimony, by the prayers that you give, by the prayer requests that you make, uh, the way that you live your life, you can have an influence in the lives of those around you. And then on top of that, as you have opportunity, where you have purposeful conversations, where you can uh, be used by the Lord uh, to change people's thinking, to help them think rightly, Uh, to give them ways that they can put the truth into practice. Uh, Those are all things that the Lord desires for us to be mindful of as we're engaging in a relationship to one another. So this means that, um, I mean, just in a sense to restate it, but to be more specific about it, we have to be purposeful in our relationships. Uh, and, And this has an implication, by the way, for choosing what church you're going to be a part of. Uh, Usually we choose churches based on our preferences, like do I like the preaching? Does it suit my preferences? Do I like the music? Does it suit my preferences? Uh, Do I just generally like the people? (laughs) Are they in the age range or the demographics that I prefer? Right? Nothing inherently wrong with those things, especially if you have good preferences with regard to, you know, I want someone to be preaching the Bible to me. Uh, or I want uh, music that is is doctrinally sound and you know spiritually uplifting that it's not a rock concert you know it's where I'm getting my ears blown out every Sunday uh, those are great preferences of course because they're my preferences so they <laughs> so that's why they're great right? um, but uh, in addition to biblical reasons that we should be choosing a church you know sound doctrine you know good teaching uh, biblical fellowship those kinds of things we should be thinking about uh is this a place where I can grow in Christ? Is this a place where I can be used by the Lord? And of course, you may not know that definitively, but where I think I can be used by the Lord uh, to be a blessing to others. So uh, that's something to, to consider. But uh, apart from you know what church you choose to go to, we should be thinking about, man, when the Lord puts someone in my life, and that can be... He puts someone around me in the worship center, you know, sitting next to me, in front of me, behind me. How can I be a blessing to them before the service, after the service? How can I encourage them? How can I exhibit the love of Christ to them? Uh, when uh, you think about the family the Lord has put around you parents, kids, uh, siblings, extended family relationships do you know that? All of that was purposefully designed, the specific people God has in your life, family relationships, God has purposefully designed for your growth and for you to be an agent of growth in their life. It's all all on purpose. There's no accidents there. When you think about your coworkers, for those of you who actually work outside the home or maybe even if you work inside the home where you have communication with, with other human beings apart from your computer... Uh, God has put you in the context of that environment so that you would be a light for Christ and so that you would exemplify Christ-likeness. In, in all the human relational dynamics that are in your life, that's on purpose from God for you to, to shine the light of Christ. Uh, in many cases, for you to receive encouragement and help and, and uh, you know, a positive influence from others. And then especially for you to be purposeful in showing the light of Christ to others. So think about that. Think about those that God has put in your life and how you can be a blessing to them. Alright, so uh, we started last week talking about what does it look like to have a loving relationship? If we're thinking about having a loving, redemptive relationship, what what does that include? How do I know if I'm being loving uh, like Christ? And uh, with... uh, With that, there are four categories or four specific things that uh, uh, Paul Tripp teaches in the Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. There's probably a lot more we could talk about, but four that are certainly essential. And the first that we talked about last week is getting into another person's world. That if we're going to be an agent of change in someone's life uh, that is promoting Christ-like change, if we're going to be exemplifying Christ-likeness, That we need to get into their world. And that means that we don't simply stand outside of their world and make judgments and give counsel based on what we think uh, of the circumstance. Uh, We have to get into their world. We have to understand their own personal experience of their life. What are the things that they're struggling with? How are they interpreting uh, their trials? Uh, What are the things that are leading them into temptation? So that understanding their context, their mindset, their uh, commitments, their, excuse me, their beliefs, their desires, and all of that is to say we understand their heart, uh, that then enables us to be more effective in the counsel that we give. Yeah, Ron.
1: Can you qualify that as to believer helping believer, believer helping unbeliever because... Getting into the world doesn't necessarily mean join them
0: in sin. <laughs> right, yeah, right. So, yeah, but when, I, when we say getting into their world, we're not saying, hey, join in every activity that they do. What we're saying is mentally understand that who this person is. What is their life experience? Uh, w- or rather, what is their experience of life? That's probably more accurate. Uh, how do they think? Um, because we can look at problems like, oh, this this is a broken marriage, or this is a person that struggles with sexual sin, or this is a person who struggles with anger, or this is a person who's depressed. We can look at those problems from the outside and say, well, here's the solution to that. You just need to trust God more. You need to stop yelling. You need to, you know, forgive. You know, we, we can give kind of general, bland counsel from the outside. But until we, it's, or rather, it's only when we understand their mindset. And how are they thinking that we can really understand what's the, what's the precise biblical truth and help that they need? So to your point, when we're ministering or when we're having an opportunity to love an unbeliever, uh, there's still an important element of that where we want to understand them and, for example, what is it in their life that um, has prevented them from putting their faith in Christ, potentially? Um, is there some intellectual wall that they can't get through? Uh, is there some past experience that turned them away from Christ? Is there just pure ignorance? They've never heard the gospel before. Uh, and they've never had the opportunity to respond or think about these things. Uh, we want to understand the person in front of us so that then we can minister to them according to who they are. Uh, does that make sense? Is that more or less answered? So that's that's the, the first main Uh, way that we have a loving redemptive relationship is we get to know the person. And we talked about how Christ has done that for us, that he's come to this earth. We'll talk about that even a little bit more today. How he uh, understood, he came to understand human experience and he knows us. And so he ministers to us effectively. Secondly, we talked about incarnating the love of Christ. And that means uh, exemplifying Christ-like character. uh, That we can represent Christ Uh, we can be, if you will, the hands and feet of Christ uh, to others if we model Christ-like character. Uh, Humility, gentleness, love, grace, forgiveness, compassion, mercy, uh, all of the attributes of Christ. uh, And, of course, there's there's many of them, the fruit of the Spirit, you can uh, throw in there, uh, where we are uh, showing this person who Christ is by how we engage with them. Uh, that both uh, draws them closer because uh, the only people Jesus ever repelled <laughs> right, are, are the religious leaders who didn't want anything to do with Christ. But for sinners, for sufferers, as Jesus engaged with them, He drew them in by how He loved them and cared for them. And so if we want to be an agent of change and be used by the Lord in that way, we need to exemplify the character of Christ, and, and that will draw them into us. That will increase their trust and their desire to receive uh, the kind of biblical help that we would have uh, to offer. And it also shows them that because we're a sinner, you know, we weren't born... Uh, with the character of Christ. So if we're able to model the character of Christ, it shows them that change is possible, that they too, by the power of the Spirit, can grow in Christ-likeness and be an agent of change in the lives of others. So uh, incarnating the love of Christ, uh, modeling Him, imitating Him, uh, is is incredibly important. All right, so for today, we want to talk about the other two aspects of having a loving and redemptive relationship. The, The third one, remember, is identify with suffering. Identify with suffering. And the fourth, which we'll come to, is uh, accept with agenda. Accept the person, but have an agenda. So, identify with with suffering. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Again, we want to always be considering how did Jesus do this, and so how can we imitate Him in how He did this for us? He is our model, uh, and so how can we imitate Him? Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 9 to 13. Author writes here, But we see Him, Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, We see Him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste Death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. All right, now there's a variety of things there. I just want to pull out a, a few uh, specific nuggets. What we see here is the emphasis on the fact that Jesus suffered like us. Right, he uh, before his incarnation, he was above the angels, and then it says he was made a little lower than the angels, and that he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So he suffered for us, and it says in in uh, verse uh, ten that he should uh, that he the Father should make the founder of their or our salvation, perfect through suffering. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them or us brothers. It's all in the third person here, but he's referring to believers. He's comparing Christ and and believers here. So in his suffering, Jesus suffered and died for us. Uh, and you could say with us in that he came to this earth. He, he got his feet dirty. he became like one of us. And he was not ashamed to call us brothers. That means that in suffering for us, Jesus did not maintain some elevated... I almost said holier than now, He was holier. <laughs> but stature above us like, yes, I'm going to die for you, but you know... Don't get too close. <laughs> Don't become too familiar. Uh, I'm still you know, above you. And of course, there's nuance to all of this. In dying for us and suffering with us and experiencing life in a fallen world, just like we experience life in a fallen world, he associates with us and he says, these are my brothers, brothers and sisters. It's like when people go through some difficult experience together. You know, war would be an example And they now call each other brothers. We're brothers in arms. We're brothers because of the experience that we've had together, where we've shared this common uh, experience. In in a similar way, and perhaps in a much more significant way, because of who Jesus is, that He is the the Son of God, that He is uh, the second member of the Trinity, uh, He humbles Himself, becomes like one of us, experiences suffering all the way to the point of death, and as a result of that, he aligns himself with us in the experience of suffering and in the association of relationship. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't maintain this maybe fatherly relationship where there is, there is a familial dynamic, but it's still one of hierarchy. Uh, he comes down to the level of brothers where we are all on the same plane. So he associates with us on a personal level. That's why it says it down there, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So there's both a, a horizontal relationship that's established in that He can help us, He can minister to us, He can bring comfort to us, He can uh, affirm, I understand what that's like to us because He suffered just like we suffered. But then there's also a, that ministry aspect of being our High Priest that we can now cry out to Him knowing that He's sympathetic, that He understands what it's like. and so. It, we can appeal to Him in His power and His glory to, to accomplish His purposes, uh, you know, make our own requests, knowing that He understands. But um, you know, He's not just with us and that's it. No, He's actually, because of His suffering, He's now a high priest over us. And so He can minister to us in that way. So again, Jesus came, He humbled Himself, He experienced suffering, and in light of that suffering... He associates with us, and therefore his ministry is effective to us. In that process, not only did he experience common suffering, but he modeled for us how to suffer. So he was a fellow sufferer, but he suffered perfectly, if you will, in that his interpretation of his suffering and his response to suffering is perfect in the eyes of God. And so we can look to his example and his model for, okay, when I'm going through suffering, how can I suffer in a way that's pleasing to God? And we won't trace this out completely, but one of my favorite passages of Scripture is 1 Peter chapter 2, where this is made explicit. 1 Peter chapter 2, just keep your finger there in Hebrews if you want to turn there. But in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he, uh, Peter writes, For to this you have been called, that is to suffer uh, graciously, um, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. He was re- reviled, but He did not revile in return. When He was suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to him who judges justly. So at least in this particular way, Jesus modeled for us how to endure unjust suffering. And how is that? Entrusting ourselves, just like He entrusted Himself, to him who judges justly. And if you flip back to Hebrews chapter 2, that's exactly the example that is given in verse 13. He says, Uh, And again, I will put my trust in Him. He's quoting uh, an Old Testament text that exemplifies how Christ suffered. He suffered by putting His trust in the Father. So, we'll come back to uh, modeling in a moment. But just understand that, that Jesus not only experienced suffering on our behalf, for us, for the purpose of redeeming us, but he in his experience of suffering, he associates himself with us. He calls us brothers. He's one of us, we're one of him. And then he modeled for us so that we can look to his example and consider what it looks like to suffer in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Now, I think it's helpful uh, to uh, again, make the comparison here between him and us where it says in verse 10, that uh, that he, that is the Father, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Put another way, Christ Jesus was made perfect through suffering. What's the problem? He already is perfect. He already is perfect. So what in the world does it mean that Jesus Christ was made perfect? Through suffering. Yeah, Michelle? perfectly able to connect with us through that. Okay. How, uh, just to tease that out a little bit, because I, I think you're onto something there, uh, how is that different than if we, he hadn't well, suffered?
1: He couldn't relate to us in our suffering if he had never experienced the suffering
0: okay. in
1: the same ways that
0: we do. Okay. Yeah, and I'll say I'm not agreeing or disagreeing. I'm just saying there's mystery there, because by His indwelling Spirit He's with us, and so he, so there's mystery. But there's I think there's something to there. If
1: we couldn't believe that He could okay. with Okay,
0: okay, that is, makes it much more believable for us, for yeah. sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, Josh.
1: Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think the word that's used there for perfect could also be translated to complete. Yeah, and that's true. It, it Kind of, it's not about you. You know, had sin and wasn't perfect, but like his work was made complete through his suffering because of the fruit that it brought for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's definitely truth in that. Absolutely, Brian. Expand on his human nature's perfected. What do you mean by that? Well, I'll tell you. I just got it from John
1: MacArthur. <laughs> <laughs> right here. What's <laughs> he in my words? He says his his human nature was perfected through. Evil. So it says here, including suffering, in order that he might be an understanding high priest, an example for believers. So a lot of, like our, we're perfected often through suffering, and Jesus is our example, the Father, and he was that that example was perfected through the
0: suffering that he went through. We're all going to go through suffering, not to the extent that Jesus did go through. I think so. Yeah, but, uh, Matt. Does
1: that have to do with, um, as, as well as what well, others have said, like a propitiation in the sense of uh, he living harm, the, the perfect life that we could not live? Like, at, at our ultimate, like, we would suffer for the Lord much more, mm-hmm. really, than we would, uh, or than we do, rather, but like, he, he suffered to be like the highest. in, a, in
0: a great state, right? Like to us. Hmm. that we did not live. Ah. So add, if I understand what you're saying, kind of he's adding to the merit of righteousness, adding merit to his chest of righteousness, if, if we want to use that language, that is then imputed to us. And so he's he's fulfilling the full righteousness that's required. Yeah. I,
1: I, I'm sorry, I was referring to imputation more than
0: vision, Okay. Uh, right.
1: I guess like going back a couple of verses,
0: the idea that he
1: tasted
0: death for everyone. Yeah. Um, kind of gets along with yeah. Did I see another hand? Okay. So there, there's, I think, there's valid truth in all that. And, and there's, you know, as with anything that re- relates to Christ, there's all kinds of things that, that we can say that are true. And I think, kind of, uh, built into all of what's been said is the fact that though Jesus was, is, always perfect, sinless, holy, you know, uh, undefiled, unblemished. That never has changed, never can change, because he is God and he cannot not be holy. Uh, so there's no sense in which he somehow becomes more holy, more sinless uh, than he already is. Right? There's no such thing as perfecting on perfection, of, of true absolute perfection. But there is a difference between having the quality of perfection and demonstrating that perfection, uh, where, you know, if you think about this, it, it, to use a very uh, insignificant exam- example, you know, probably every table in this room went through some kind of quality inspection. Where the table itself was made, and let's just say for the sake of argument that it was made right. It was made perfectly, as perfectly as a table can be made uh, it was made according to specifications, right size, dimensions, functionality, all of that. But it still has to go through a quality inspection to make sure, hey, was this actually made the way it was supposed to be made? Without that sticker that is usually put on a product that, hey, this has been tested, uh, there's something in us that says, mm, is it really? <laughs> right, and this kind of goes back to what Michelle was saying in a sense. Uh, but with that sticker, it's like, okay, somebody looked it over, they measured it, they tested it, it, it works, it, it functions the way it's supposed to work. Uh, there's something about the, the acts of righteousness, the, the work of righteousness, which not only strengthens our confidence, but also contributes to uh, the merit of Christ. And, and we, we call this in theology, uh, the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience, which is to say that he lived a righteous life. He didn't simply passively, if you will, and I think even this would be wrong to say, but it's it's the term used in theolo- theology. He didn't simply passively obey the Father by going through the cross and the sufferings of the cross. You know, I say that's not passive because even though things were happening to him, Jesus was very clear, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up again. But it's passive it's referred to as passive because you know he didn't nail his own hands on the cross and you know that kind of thing. Um, that's considered to be the passive obedience of Christ. Uh, but then there's the active obedience of Christ whereby Jesus lived his whole life from infancy to adulthood in perfect obedience to the law of God and the laws of men, not necessarily the traditions of men, but the laws uh, of men. And so by actively obeying the father and responding to all of his circumstances of life, most especially the various sufferings uh, he demonstrated he put on display he proved his righteousness and so not only can we say that he's righteous because that's that's what God tells us is true of him but but we can say he's put on display his perfection. And in that sense, there's a completion. I think this goes to what Josh was saying. Uh, it's not just about you know, perf- uh, being perfected in this sense is not adding to a level of perfection. It's, it's uh, talking about uh, that there's a wholeness, not where there was incompleteness in, in, the, uh, in his natural state of righteousness, but there was an incompleteness in the sense that there was no demonstration of it. So, it was simply proven, and in that sense, it was complete. So, Jesus, uh, because of his suffering, is perfected through his active obedience. Now, this is also part of how he modeled uh, what life is like for us. Our suffering is designed by God, To serve the purpose of perfecting us. And just, I think, you know, this is um, easily seen in James chapter 1. A familiar passage to, to many of us. James chapter 1, verse 2. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. It's Kind of uh, using two words to, to make one statement. Uh, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that and many other passages tell us that the purpose that God has for our suffering is that we would be perfected, that we would be made complete. And so in the same way <clears throat> that Christ was perfected in His suffering, we also, admittedly in in different ways, because though we are perfected in Christ, we wear the righteous robes of Christ, that is not true of us. We don't have inherent, we don't have, uh, uh, if you will, a natural righteousness uh, that is uh, of, of our own nature. Uh, it's It's how God sees us, but it's not... Inherently true of us. So, suffering then produces, uh, you know, James uses the word perfection, um, sanctification, uh, growth, maturity, you know, all all of those kinds of terms. And so, in that sense, Christ, again, was our uh, model uh, in that he suffered to be perfected, knowing that we too would suffer for the purpose of uh, perfection. In his case, he already was holy. In our case, uh, we become more holy through our suffering. All right? All of that is to say that Jesus uh, identifies with us in our suffering. He doesn't stand off from afar. He doesn't sit up in heaven um, unsympathetic, unaware, uncaring. And then you can even add to these truths the reality, as as I mentioned earlier, that uh, because He dwells within us by His Spirit, uh, because He is in us and we are in Him, He experiences, He goes through suffering right along with us. So He is with you in the moment of your suffering. And so He knows exactly uh, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, uh, and in in that sense He is suffering with you, and He identifies with you in that. Now, if Christ so identifies with us, then the lesson is how much more should we identify with one another? Because, unlike him, we, we are sinners, but, but we also suffer, right? There's no one that, that you can meet, and you all know you're su- that you suffer, uh, but there's no one that you can meet who doesn't suffer. You know, sometimes we think that because we don't know the details of people's lives. Uh, we, we meet each other, we see each other on Sunday mornings, we you know, say hello, how's it going, and you know, we, we don't hear about what's actually going on in their lives, either what's going on in the moment, what happened this week, what happened this morning, or we don't know what's happened in their past, what kind of home they grew up in, what kind of suffering and experiences they had, tragedies, traumas, all, all the rest. There is no personal life who has not experienced suffering. And so that enables us to identify with one another. Now, turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians, rather 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. Because this is true, because this is true, this puts us in the prime position to be an agent of change in the life of another person. 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, starting in verse 3 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and god of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we have been which with, with which we ourselves have been comforted by god what is this saying very simple it's pretty obvious god comforts us in our affliction in our suffering in our trials and as a result of receiving the comfort of God, we now can give that comfort to others. And do you notice what it said? That He comforts us in all of our affliction, which is particular to you. All right, There's only one you, if you're married, married to your spouse, or with the relationships that you have in your life, past or present, uh, there's only one you in terms of the, the job that you have, and in the, the the body, the health, the sickness, you know whatever it is that you have there's only there's that there, you have your own afflictions that God comforts you in the context of so that we may be able to comfort those who are in what what kinds of afflictions in any affliction in any affliction so we can ask the question do you, have to go through the same kind of thing that another person goes through in order to minister to that. If there's someone who's lost a loved one, should you think, well, I don't really know what that's like, so I'm not going to draw near them and minister to them. If someone reveals to you some trauma they had as a child that is you know, an ongoing struggle for them, should you think, well, oh gosh, I've never experienced anything remotely close to that. I, you know, The Lord's really blessed me, and I, I don't know what that's like, so maybe somebody else needs to minister to that. Is that what you should think? No. What the Lord has taught you, how He has comforted your soul, He gives to you, not only for your own personal comfort, but the overflow of that is so that you can minister to anyone in any affliction. That means that we have to be, uh, I, let me rephrase that. that, that assumes that we have um, received the comfort of the Lord. In the sense that we can not just you know, get through a season of suffering and oh, whew, glad that's over. <laughs> Good, life is better now. It assumes that as we suffer, we are seeking the Lord. And we are particularly having in mind specific ways in which the Lord is comforting us. Uh, where we are purposefully, or, or uh, where we're mindful, I should say, of the fact that the Lord himself is comforting us. Whatever means he's using, maybe he's using other people, maybe he's using a book that we read or something that we listened to or heard or something like that. But he's comforting us. He's giving us truth. He's, he's helping us. And it's the content, it's the substance of the comfort that we receive from the Lord that then helps us minister comfort to others. Now, I, I think that's something that's easy for us to... Okay, I, I grab that. I understand what that means. Uh, if you know, I go through a, a trial and there's, let's say, a particular psalm that the Lord uses to really strengthen me and, and cause me to trust in Him and, and whatnot, I, I can take that psalm and i I can minister it to someone else we can think about that in in general but then it gets tricky when we actually face someone eye to eye who's going through something that we have no ability to identify with in terms of the the nature of their struggle uh, or their experience that's when we start to think well i know this minister to me but i have nothing to do with them (laughs) and their struggle right so we need, to, we need to kind of convince ourselves, I think, a little bit more of what are the kinds of things that make uh, the, the ministry, the comfort of the Lord, strengthen us, that we can then pass on to others. Uh, turn over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just back a few pages from where you're at. This is a passage that I use uh, all the time, almost almost everyone I meet with for the first time for a counseling Uh, session, I I, I use this verse to end our time together. It says there, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I won't go through it the same that I do with, with people all the time, but I'll do a little bit of that. First of all, the word temptation there, understand that it's, it's the word that is also translated trials. It can mean a temptation or a trial, just depending on the context. And the root idea is that it's a test. If you want to think of it this way, the test is, am I going to trust God in this moment? Am I going to believe what God says? Or am I going to reject what God says and go my own way? A temptation is a temptation that is seeking to convince you to reject what God says. Did God really say? It's a temptation that leads you to question God's character. If God knew what was good for me, I would. he would let me do this. <laughs> right? That's a temptation, like the garden. Uh, a trial is a moment of suffering that leads you to potentially question, is God good? Why did God let this happen? It, so again, it's a test. Am I going to trust what God has revealed about himself, that he is good, that he is faithful, that he's in control? Or am I going to throw my hands up, reject God's, uh, what, God's revelation of himself, his purposes for suffering, and, and grow in bitterness? So temptation, trial, same idea. I hope that's fixing your mind. That's really important. He says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. That doesn't mean that everybody goes through the same thing that you're going through. That's saying that the trial or the temptation, the substance of it, is common. That if you look at all the circumstances, all the situations in people's lives, all of the the relational dynamics, all of the types of suffering, uh, if you... Put together all of the, the details of people's sufferings and temptations, they really boil down to some common human experiences of trials and temptation. Or let me put it this way: they tend to raise the same questions in the heart and mind. And we'll come back to that in a second. But that's that's what's common. They tend to raise the same questions. And he says there, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And, you know, often people say, well, I don't know. It sure feels like this is beyond my ability to handle this moment. And I think what Paul is getting at there is uh, recognizing the rest of what Scripture says that in everything that God, uh, uh, in every moment, God gives us resources. You know, I mentioned Second Peter 1, that we have all of the, um, uh, through the knowledge of Him, um, His divine power is granted to us, everything pertaining to life and godliness. So we have everything that we need. What are those things at a fundamental level? We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, who convicts us, who encourages us, who reminds us of the truth, who empowers us for obedience, gives us strength for each day, gives us grace. We have the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God. That we can look, and by God's grace, we live in a day and age where we all have our own Bibles, and and we have it where, wherever we, we are, and we can look at it and remind ourselves of things that we can't remember in our minds. And all the benefits that come to us from God's Word. And then we have the people of God, that God has put around us, to remind us of what God's Word says, to encourage us, to motivate us, to keep us accountable and all the rest, We have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God. And with those three resources, with those powers combined, we can endure whatever God has given us. Not of our own strength, not by you know just girding up ourselves, but by taking advantage of the blessings that God has given us so that we can endure our temptation. Okay, so we've already established that we don't need to have experienced the same thing that another person has in order to minister... Comfort to them. So here's a question I want, want us to bat around just for a couple minutes. What, um, what are the common problems and therefore solutions that we share regardless of the kinds of suffering we experience? And unfortunately we don't have as much time to, to bat this around, but let's just give maybe three three particular examples. I already said, based on the commonality of our trials and temptations, that they tend to raise the same kinds of questions. So what are some of those questions, if you will, that are a particular struggle, almost regardless of what you're going through, and therefore what are the the solutions to that? Carolyn? Why me? Why me? Which is a question about um, myself, what have I done? Which is also a question about God. Why has He chosen me? Right. So there's there's multiple questions, but that is a very common question. Right. What else? What's another question? Uh, yeah.
1: So um, it would be, how could you let this happen, um, specifically within your church? Um, last year. Three of our very close friends who are in different parts of the U.S. and the world and ourselves all experienced very different situations, but they all dealt with things within the church. Mm-hmm. And all of us, in our own way, experienced the feelings of injustice and questioning, like, mm-hmm. how could you mm-hmm. let this happen in your own church? Mm-hmm. So all that to say, it's a perfect example of how it's totally different situations, but the same mm-hmm. common to me in the mm-hmm. question.
0: Yeah. Yeah, how could you let this happen? And that uh, kind of underneath that is a question pertaining to the the I mean, character, the will, the purposes of God. What could you possibly be doing in all of this? Barbara? So that's a, another common question, what what have we done? You know, what's sin in our life? And that's that's an ancient question, John 9, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind, so that's that's a common question, uh, Josh. And uh, I think a
1: common but misguided question is, is how can I control it? Hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. What can I do to fix it? Yeah. How can I control it? Yeah. Good. How
1: long?
0: How long is this going to last? Yeah. All right. Just the last one. God, listening to my prayers. Do you notice how? Almost all of those were specifically and directly, explicitly about God. Some about us, you know, um, what have I done, or how can I control it, you know, that kind of thing. But many of these questions are about God. Whether it's a health issue, whether it's a, problems in the church, whether it's uh, family issues, um, it, that What really binds our suffering together, no matter what the circumstances are, is that it raises major questions in our hearts about God. That's why we can look to the Psalms and, uh, yeah, okay, there's a, a lot of commonality of uh, enemies, you know, personal enemies, especially on David's part. Uh, but there's a lot of other kinds of suffering as well. And, and yet the consistent solution is always go to God trust in the Lord there's those questions of how long and why and God why aren't you paying attention to me how could you let this happen all of those are God oriented questions that we find in the Psalms that then the answer is consider who God is so as we think about how can the Lord use me to be a blessing to another person who's struggling one of the primary ways that can happen is the Lord can use us to help someone else know God better. And if it's not know God better, maybe they already know, but they just need to be reminded, <laughs> right? They they need to be helped to think rightly about God. Yeah, all right. How do you do that without end up becoming like Yeah. Yeah, so that's, oh, that's such a great question. Um, well, it starts with what we started with of getting into their world, trying to understand. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's another key point. So st- let's start with I get into their world, and that's what they did for the first seven days. Uh, they got into Job's world. They they joined him in his sorrow. That's where we're called to weep with those who weep. Okay. True. I mean, obviously, yeah, we don't necessarily know how they were thinking in those first seven days. But but when they opened their mouths, we know how they were thinking. <laughs> and they came with the wrong counsel of, hey, Job, what sin is there in your life <laughs> that has led this uh, to this happening to you? Erica? You're... I think that with Job's friend and
1: even Job himself, and often for all of us, it's just the wrong view of God. Yeah. Yeah. what he was doing in this situation. And Job himself had to be corrected by God. Right. Um, and so I think that's the same thing. We have to help people. We have to know ourselves who God is. Mm-hmm. Day, and then we have to help people when we see what the wrong thinking is, that
0: yeah. this is the truth. This is who God is yeah. who is. Yeah. Yeah, so their view of God was God blesses those who are righteous and he curses those who are sinful. So their conclusion was, Job, you must be sinful because of what you've done. must have done something to deserve this. So they had a wrong view of God, uh, and therefore they made wrong conclusions about Job. And so when we get into someone's world and we understand what's going on in our heart and mind, we can understand what is it that they're thinking about God, how are they thinking about themselves, and how can then we minister truth to them. But it is a good point that you raise, because even though we can sit here and all acknowledge, yeah, those friends of Job, they were terrible... You know, they didn't know God well. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes we know that someone has just they've messed up their life. And then they suffer. Maybe it's it's obvious how there's a connection, or maybe it's not so obvious. And our first instinct is, well, there you go. (laughs) You know, they, they got what they deserve. Uh, they're they're suffering because of their sin. Again, sometimes that's a pretty easy to connection to be, to make. You know, you get in a uh, in a car accident because you've been driving drunk. Uh, lesson learned: don't drive drunk. <laughs> but other times, uh, we look we have an opinion about someone. Uh, maybe they're not walking faithfully with the Lord. Uh, maybe they're not doing something that we think they should be doing, and then something you know unrelated. Maybe they're, it's not overt sin in their life, but they're they're simply not living up to what we think they should be living up to, and so they they experience suffering. And sometimes we think, Ah, see, if they were following the Lord, they would not experience that. Michelle.
1: So when you had asked, what are the common questions that pop up? My first one was the loneliness, hmm. like the deep abysmal loneliness that comes in suffering. And there's only one answer to that loneliness. And Job's friends sat with him, mm-hmm. but they didn't answer that loneliness with they're sitting. The only answer to that loneliness is, God is with you. Mm-hmm. And they decided we did not say, God is with you. And when God answered Job, his answer was, I am with you. And that's when Job's light Back was when his loneliness was answered by God's presence. And I think that that's the answer to not being Joe's friends. It's not sitting with someone in their loneliness and being like, "Wow, you are in it. Mm-hmm. But God is in it mm-hmm. with
0: you. Yeah. yeah, and that's the promise that is so clear in the New Testament, that I will never leave you or forsake you. Which, you know, we can sit with someone... Uh, I don't, I've never heard, outside of Joe's friends, of someone in the modern world sitting with someone seven days, seven nights, tearing their clothes, throwing ashes on their head, you know, and, and being that, that devoted, if you will, to, to ministering to someone. Uh, and not that you know, that's in many ways, that was a cultural dynamic. But uh, no matter how much we can uh, come into someone's life and minister to them with a ministry of presence, there's going to be those moments where we can't be with them. <laughs> And so that's, that's one of the truths, that's one of the comforts uh, that, that then we can bring to someone is to help them remember that God is with them. All right. Yeah, Ron.
1: You're about the, that level of friend devotion. Don't know about that, but I had a friend that asked me to fast with
0: them. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep, for sure. We can certainly join together in that. Matt, go ahead.
1: <laughs> I was just going to point out
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and not just idolatry in general, it's specific to when the people were at the foot of Mount Sinai wondering, hey, where's this Moses guy? Which is you know, he's been up the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. I guess they got used to the thundering clouds and lightning and all of that that was up there. But um, but they began to question, well, did God forget us? I'm assuming there. And so then they moved to idolatry. And, uh, and so they raised questions in their own hearts and minds of who God is and his care for them. And thinking wrongly, they imposed false ideas on themselves. And No one, not even Aaron, stopped to say, hey guys, God is still with us. Moses is up there and he will come back, right? So, yeah. Uh, All right, so much more we could say about that. Um, We may not always have the specific answers to someone's suffering, but we can point them to the Lord uh, and God's goodness, God's character, God's presence uh, and all of those things. All right. So that's identify with suffering. That's one of the ways we cultivate redemptive, loving relationships is by identifying with suffering. The last one, and and this we can cover cover quickly, is uh, accept with agenda. To look at this, I want to just look at two passages. Number one, Romans chapter 15. Accept with agenda. This simply means that rather than uh, keeping people at arm's length and running away when we hear some tale that you know shocks us and, and dismays us uh, we need to draw closer we need to welcome one another and have and do that for the purpose of uh, encouraging and, and being agents of change in each other's lives Romans chapter 15 Paul is um, more or less wrapping up his discussion about uh, the debate of Uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols um, and that was taking place in the life of the church. And so he says in verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, Again, we, we often choose our relationships based on commonalities. We like common interests. We uh, read similar books. We like similar activities. We have the same theology. <laughs> uh, we like the same kind of food. Um, we, we enjoy the same kinds of things. Uh, we enjoy our freedom in Christ in the same kinds of ways. Let me put it that way. And that's what these believers were doing. There were those who were strong, who had Uh, who felt that they had freedom in Christ to do things that other believers did not think they had freedom in Christ to do. And so there was two groups. There was a division between them, and they weren't mixing. In fact, they were judging each other. You're too immature, and you're sinning, and whatnot. What Paul says here, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, is the standard for our relationships, the the, the rock-bottom standard is are we in Christ? Together, (laughs) do we have fellowship with one another in the light? Are we brothers and sisters in Christ? If the answer to that is yes, then we should welcome one another despite whatever differences we might have with each other, right? And Paul talks about in other passages, you know, one person esteems one day or over another; one person uh, you know chooses to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, the other person doesn't. There's all kinds of differences that we might have in the body of Christ. But if we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we should not let those differences cause us to separate from each other. Rather, we should welcome, we should accept one another. But how did Christ accept us? Did He accept us for the purpose of just leaving us how we are? Did He he bring us into His kingdom? Like, okay, now have fun. (laughs) No, He accepted us. He brought us into His family For the purpose, ultimately, of bringing about change in our lives. So while we accept one another, we also ought to be purposeful in each other's lives to help each other grow in Christ. Now this doesn't mean, and we've got to be careful here, that you meet someone who thinks differently than you do, and your job is now to make them think the same way you do. (laughs) Right? Have the same preferences, root for the same teams, you know, eat the same food, you know, that kind of stuff. But rather, just if you think in the bigger principle, uh, we welcome each other knowing that God intends for all of us to sharpen one another. So, here, here's, I've, I've said this before, but here's where I think it gets real serious. Um, when, uh, let me back up, start over. Um, people are often afraid. Maybe some of you have been afraid to really let people into your life to know what you've done or to know what's been done to you. Because the assumption is if people knew they wouldn't want me to be part of this church or they wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. If people knew that I had an abortion, they would reject me. If people knew that I was abused as a child, they would treat me like dirty laundry. They would want nothing to do with me. If people knew that I've been divorced, or if people, whatever, people have gone through things, and they sometimes think, if people knew, they wouldn't welcome me. So we need to be a church that welcomes one another so that people can say, I, I can, you know, in appropriate context, in appropriate ways, I can share what I've, struggle with I can share what I've gone through I can share how Christ has worked in my life knowing that I won't be rejected and if needed that I will receive help I will receive encouragement I'll receive counsel from others Um, maybe just put the final nail in here with Titus chapter 2 No, it's been a while, but uh, when I preached through Titus a couple years ago, uh, this sentence, verses 11 to 14, uh, I don't remember exactly how I phrased it, but I identified it as one of the most succinct and significant definitions of the Christian life uh, in the Bible. He says this, for the grace of God, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people But we have redemption, we have um, sanctification, uh, progressive sanctification, training us to renounce ungodliness, and we have uh, the, the good works. It ends there with a zealous for good works, where we, He now uses us to accomplish His purposes in this world that He has prepared for us. As it says in Ephesians 2.10. So, Christ accepts us with an agenda. Right? He, he saves us, he brings us into his kingdom, he adopts us into his family with the agenda to bring about change in our lives. And there, therefore, again, as we, as we model and imitate him, we accept one another. We embrace one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that uh, we have an opportunity now with that relationship to be uh, an agent of change, to be zealous for good works. Again, that doesn't mean that every conversation that we have has to have some deep meaning where we change each other, but it means that in the, course of relating, uh, in the course of life, as we relate to one another, as we suffer, as we battle sin, that we are purposeful to love one another well enough uh, to say, hey, how can I be an encouragement to this person with what they're going through this week? How can I be a blessing to them? How can I strengthen them? How can I lift up their arms when they're when they're feeling weak? Uh, how can I point them to the Lord in the midst of their trials? We should be actively thinking about that so that Christ is glorified, uh, they are helped, and we're encouraged by how the Lord uses us. All right. Uh, if you haven't um, been reading, which, uh, again, I don't assume that you have, but um, in... Um, the instruments in the Redeemer's hands for the, the chapter for this particular session. Uh, a lot of more really helpful material. He has a section talking about uh, how can you share your own story in a way that's helpful, honoring to the Lord, but also is ministers uh, to others. How can you give your testimony, not only your salvation testimony, but a testimony of God's work in your life to others. So if, if you're interested in, man, I've I've gone through something and I've never really known how I can share in a way that's that's edifying, that's honoring to the Lord, uh, let me know and I'll, don't tell anybody. I'll photocopy it and, and uh, give that to you. And I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, I've had this thought, and I don't know how it'll happen uh, logistically, but um, I would like, uh, if, if the Lord would be pleased, uh, I would like in the course of this year to make a number of videos of people in our church uh, giving testimony to God's faithfulness to them, whether it's a salvation testimony, whether it's how the Lord has worked through a trial in their life and comforted and grown them, uh, whatever it is, just some kind of a testimony of how the Lord has worked in their life. You know, it's short, uh, just you know, a couple minutes, a few minutes at the most, uh, so that that can be an encouragement to the rest of the body for how God is working in our church in specific ways. So. I say that to say if you're if you're interested in sharing something that God has done in your life, please talk to me. I'd love to to, to know that, um, and uh, that would then help me make progress in that. All right, let me pray.